please join me in warmly welcoming Tony Norton. Thank you, John. So good evening, everybody. This is my chance, however, to express publicly the great help I've had from the staff here at the Athenaeum, especially three people who were bothered almost nonstop for the last four years, uh, Arnold Serapilio, Jim Feeney, and Mary Warneman. And all the staff here has been very helpful, without which I couldn't have done this project. A Foray into Forgeries is the title of a subchapter of a book that I'm doing on Benjamin Blythe, a late 18th century portrait artist from Salem, Massachusetts. It is the unraveling of a tale of deliberate deception that ensnared several of Boston's cultural institutions, including this one. But before I relate the sordid story, let me set the stage. Right after my visiting fellowship, or whatever it was called here, I was given an NEA grant to catalog the print collection at the Essex Institute. And while I was there, the position of registrar became open and they asked me if I would take it and I said, sure. So I became the registrar and quote, in charge of the print collection, which was wonderful. It was a lot of fun, actually. There's a sign that I had in my office that I had for years, paint a number, rest, rest. So levity aside, <laughs> registrars are privy to an institution's entire holdings, and I soon became familiar with the superb collection there. Like many older New England institutions, both the Essex Institute and the Peabody Museum, which merged in 1992, <clears throat> contain much portraiture. And it's always been a love of mine. At the time, I was also incorporator of something called the Dublin Seminar for New England Folklife <clears throat> and an editor. And they decided to do one of their uh, annual, report, annual uh, meetings on portraiture. So I picked Blythe. But I knew at the time that I'd only scratched the surface because I relied heavily on portraits within the Institute itself. And I always felt that there was much more to know about him. So when I was approached four years ago by a dealer who had two portraits and wanted to know whether or not they were by Blythe, and they are, I'd never seen them before. He said that if I wrote on him, he would publish the book. So I was hooked, <laughs> but it stopped there. <laughs> um, I knew that there were many more portraits by Benjamin Blythe <clears throat> than anyone had ever bothered to really look into, not only in his well-known medium of pastels, but also of oils. And it occurred to me, if he advertised himself as a miniaturist when he moved to Richmond, Virginia, he must have done some when he was in Salem. And the smoking gun was a little diary entry sent to me by Peter Benish, who started the Dublin seminars, saying that the Reverend Manasseh Cutler and his wife, he wrote in his diary, were painted in miniature by Blythe. Nobody had ever looked into that. So I plowed on and I looked into all sorts of publications, visiting institutions to look at both their anonymous and uncatalogued works, and believe me, every institution has a lot of both categories. And I also contacted families of the people who had owned the portraits ahead of time and tried to track them down. The result is that I've come up to cl with close to 150 portraits 
by Blythe, double the number that had been known before. And they're in both oils and miniatures. Okay, now where's this thing? Here it is. Okay. For years, his portraits have been Blythe, have been really revered for their depiction of character. And here are the icons of the Massachusetts Historical Society. Bernard Balin wrote about them at one point. They were intriguing for an admirable strength of personality and intellect, confident, controlled, her face, pardon me, start again, her face. Admirable strength of personality and intellect, confident, controlled, commanding a face as a woman's calf can have <clears throat> and still remain feminine. Yeah. <laughs> and he began doing portraits of some of the other matrons in town and then soon was doing the famous Dr. Holyoke and his wife. By the early 1770s, he really was on his way. He was drawing ship captains, merchants, and clergy, and these two. The Beatties provide a very good example of the kind of work that I had to do because the portrait is supposedly of Gideon and his wife, uh, thankful. <clears throat> but they were not married until 1778. And for those of you who know anything about uh, history of costume, <clears throat> what they're wearing is very much a costume of the late 1760s, early 1770s. And Gideon was a dealer in cloth and, and clothing. I can't imagine that he wouldn't have been a little bit more, or, more au courant in 1978 than that. And the other thing is the hairstyles a wig, and her upsweep, which was very, very popular from 1769 to 73. So I have tentatively said this might be Rachel and not thankful. But that's the sort of thing, and this is probably one of the most difficult ones I had to face. <clears throat> and he also did, Blaith did, many portraits in oil. When it came on the market in 2005, Marvin Sadik, who, at the t who had been, he had retired by then, had been the head of the uh, Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery, was convinced it was by Blythe, and he bid aggressively for it and did win it. He bid 32000 paid $32,480 for it. Anna, in this portrait, was known as one of the handsomest women in the country, according to the diary of William Bentley. The little girl there, Betsy, however, grew up to have an awful tragic life, just one tragedy after another, and I cannot help but think of it every time I look at that portrait. As for miniatures, these are, of course, the derbies. <clears throat> uh, they are, turn one page too many, Elias Haskett Derby was known as America's first millionaire and owned the, the yacht Cleopatra's Barge. And the Derbys were great, great patrons of the Blythe, of Blythe actually, including their own family portraits and their direct relatives. There are eight pastels that were done by Blythe of Derbys and then these two miniatures. Blythe was also known for a long time to produce original drawings of paintings for prints of Revolutionary War figures like uh, Isaac Putnam and George Washington. And last year I discovered 
that the Blythe print in the superb but held up and down a little known collection of the William Elkins collection of Americana. I've never seen a print like that or colored like that. And it is known, B. Blythe pinks it. In fact, it's the only impression known of this print, and I've talked with a number of institutions lately, you know, the Met, the Boston Public Library, the New York uh, Historical Society, uh, and the American Antiquarian Society. Nobody had ever seen this print before. So it's probably the only impression. The other thing is that that Elkins collection, which nobody seemed to know much about, has opened up and changed the entire story of printmaking in Salem during the Revolution. So this talk, one of the points of the talk, is to celebrate the holdings of the rare books and manuscripts of this library, upstairs in the Virchbar room, including its great Washingtoniana. So I'm going to digress for a minute to show you another print that has a tidbit which I think is fascinating. This rare print of Washington on the left has been known for years and prized because it is the first engraved portrait that was ever done of Washington. And if you look at it, it was made in Salem by a silversmith and engraver named Joseph Hiller. He used as his source, and you see the detail on the right? Can anybody figure out what that detail is? Okay, all those spires. And on the very right-hand side, there's a beacon. It's a view of Boston. <clears throat> Nobody had ever mentioned this before, and I wondered whether the original painting by Beale, by Peel rather, had it. So there's the painting at the Brooklyn Museum, and on the right is the detail, and by God, there it is. Now this, this uh, painting was done for John Hancock in, 19, in 1776. So you can see that including Boston would be a nice thing to do. So to find out if anybody had ever written about this detail, I looked at every single relevant book on Washington I could find. And by the way, there are the prints on the top is the original Burgess print, the view of Boston, southeast view of the great town of Boston, blah, blah, blah. And on the bottom, I have blown it up enough so that you can see. And on the top, there again, is the print with the view. I looked at every single book I could find on the subject of Washington and the Washingtonian collection upstairs, and nobody mentioned seeing that view which I, I find amazing. And Peel was known to be very careful about detail and very precise. He did another portrait of Washington known as the Trenton portrait, and everybody has commented on the fact that he included a Princeton building in the background. But Boston didn't get that treatment. Okay, now I want you to look up at the one on the top right. If you notice from the early one, let me back up a second. You see there's nothing in the background except a distant shore, right? 
On this one, you have those plumes. Knowing that it's Boston, do you have any idea what's going on? Bunker Hill, the burning of Charlestown. So, Charlestown was burned the year before, and obviously it was rather traumatic for the citizens of Boston. And so you might think of Washington, sorry about that. You might think of Washington as standing on Dorchester Heights. <laughs> and actually, of course, the city was freed by Washington in Evacuation Day of 1776. The print was issued shortly thereafter. So we're going to move on for this with John G. Bowe. This is one of my favorite pastels by Blythe. He was Elizabeth Crownshield Derby's nephew. That's one of the family portraits. He was a scholarly man. He was said to be 13 in this print, about ready to go to Harvard. <clears throat> but he was reserved, yeah, <laughs> reserved and serious. He later became a very good friend of Dr. Bentley. And it's wonderful to read the diaries and read about how Jibo would come back from some foreign trip with archaeological or ethnological <clears throat> gifts to give to Bentley. And the two of them walked on the beach together. They went belonged to the same social clubs. It really brought the man alive for me. Let's see. So this brings me then to the main subject of this talk, which is the foray into forgeries. I'd been trying to figure out from whom Blythe might have learned how to do pastels. John Singleton Copley was totally ruled out for reasons you'd find in my book. Much more likely was a man named Joseph Blackburn, one of colonial New England's most prominent portraitists. And he did several portraits of Salem people. He wouldn't have known Blackburn because Blythe was just a young lad when, when uh, Blackburn left, but he would know his works because Blackburn actually painted enough Salem people that were in the houses that Blythe could have seen them. And in fact, Dr. Holyoke's wife asked Blythe to do a pastel portrait of her grandfather, an oil painting by Blackburn. So he would have had a good idea of what the style was like. And that's why I left that cuff up there, because Blackburn was renowned for his ability to do both lace and all sorts of wonderful fabrics. And I have some others that I want to show you. And especially look at the one on the right in the neckline of that one. And this is Blythe at his best. So for about 90 years, references had circulated in several publications of the existence of four Blackburn pastels, at least three of which were signed, I Blackburn Pinksit 1760. The I, of course, is really a J. They were of Lieutenant Governor Thomas Oliver, Mrs. Oliver, Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson, and then one of the New York merchant, Thomas Daring. And they would seem to be an exciting supposition for Benjamin Blythe's knowledge on how to make pastels, I thought. 
So to find out about them, I was consulting books in the art department of this August institution, and I happened to say to David Deringer, the former director of, uh, what was the title, director of exhibitions and Susan Moran Hillis, curator of paintings and sculpture, that I was puzzled at our historian's references to these and what I was not able to find. And David said, that's because he didn't do any. Aha. Uh -huh. Although these pastels in questions are indeed 18th century pastels, as you will see when we look at them, not only were they not by Blackburn, but the sitters of two, if not three of them, are not who they are alleged to be. One or two may even be the work of Benjamin Blythe. So here is the story behind the fraud. Here we have Thomas Oliver on the left and Penelope Vassal Oliver on the right. The Museum of Fine Arts bought the, quote, Lieutenant Governor Oliver in 1929 from Frank W. Bailey, owner of the Copley Gallery at 103 Newbury Street, near Clarendon Street. That was recently, for those who know it, the shop of John Lewis. If anybody knows John Lewis, and I'm wearing one of his pins, actually. I love his jewelry. So, until recently, Earlier, this is an important nugget to hold on to, by the way. Bailey had offered the pastel to a man named John Hill Morgan, an art historian, a professor at Yale. He offered him the pastel of Oliver and Mrs. Oliver, and Morgan turned him down. The next pastel, that's interesting. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's go here now. Okay. There's Thomas Hutchinson. This is the painting of Thomas Hutchinson by Edward Truman that's at the Mass Historical Society. So, Bailey took it upon himself to change whatever he had at the time of somebody who looked somewhat like it and try to make it into Hutchinson. Okay, Bailey was really a zealous dealer. His modus operandi is very clear from a letter he sent to the director of the Boston Athenaeum for another portrait of Governor Simon Bradstreet. This is the letter excerpted, and the, the letter itself is on exhibit upstairs, the one that Bailey sent. May 17, 1920. Dear Mr. Bolton, I have a letter this morning from the owner of the Bradstreet portrait. She has found another person interested to buy it. She feels quite sure that she can get her asking price of $1,500. If this is so, may I ask you to quote this price to your trustees? I think we agree this is a very rare portrait of one of our earliest American characters. I hope your trustees will not hesitate long. And they didn't. The Athenaeum succumbed and it bought the portrait. Later on, learned it was fraudulent, not only to artist, but to subject. And this is the story that David Derringer told the, uh, an audience here about at the Athenaeum a few years ago, and he told me about it and gave me his paper. The portrait is still here, but not exhibited, needless to say. And the letter from Bradley is upstairs on exhibit. At that time, the Massachusetts Art Commission 
was also looking for portraits of early governors that were gaps in the collections that they had for the Massachusetts State House. And in fact, this may have given Bailey the idea that this would be a good thing to supply them with. At any event, by 1922-23, he offered the commission a supposed portrait of Governor Jonathan Belcher. And the chief of the archives division sought out the advice from state art commission members, including a man named Lawrence Park, and Park pronounced it, <clears throat> quote, a copley, although rather crudely drawn. The letter was then sent asking people to purchase it. Then the commission noted that if Massachusetts did not acquire it, Princeton University or the state of New Jersey would. Again, dangling other buyers. So the commission purchased it for $3,000. Uh, you get the picture, it's not an uncommon one, still goes on today and probably has since the beginning of commerce. The Athenaeum, the MFA, and the Massachusetts Art Commission can be excused for accepting the attributions and provenance of these portraits. Bailey, by the 1920s, was very well regarded, not only as a dealer, but as a scholar of American colonial portraiture. He was part of a network of like-minded scholars of American art, including Morgan and Park. Those three had traveled together several places, up to Maine and down to Brooklyn, looking up information on Blackburn. And they referenced each other in their published work. Bailey credited Morgan with having found Blackburn's correct first name, and he modestly corroborating what he himself had found earlier. Bailey's publications included several important early monographs on colonial portraitists Smybert, Feek, Blackburn, and John Johnston. Bailey published these portraits and devoted an entire one to Johnston, calling him, quote, among the best of the little-known American portrait painters, and he was right. One of these pamphlets also is on view upstairs. In 1919, Bailey published a book on John Singleton Copley. In 1929, he published Five Colonial Artists, a large book with numerous full-page illustrations. And Bailey supplied the text for the Museum of Fine Arts, quote, Lone Exhibition of 100 Colonial Portraits, organized for the Massachusetts Tercentenary in 1930. Annoyed at mistakes in the catalog, however, which was not what he had sent them, Bailey sent a terse letter to Bolton here at the Athenaeum, asking him to correct the entries in the Athenaeum copy of the catalog. This letter is also on view upstairs, with the corrections having been made. So this idea of selling portraits of important governors in Massachusetts's early history, an intentional fraud, may have become begun inadvertently 13 years before. In 1916, the Metropolitan Museum had been given, through a descendant, an unsized, unsigned pastel portrait of Thomas Daring. with a detail. It was among the gifts to the museum of five family portraits, of which three were said to be by Blackburn. The donor, however, believed that this pastel was by an unknown artist. But it was soon attributed by the museum itself in its succession files to Blackburn. 
an attribution that also continued into the 1980s, if not longer. And when I was looking through the museum succession folder for any information on how this could happen, I found nothing. But there was correspondence within the folder between the donor and the museum alluding to the museum's annual report for 1917. So it was dug out for me from the bowels of the archives of the Met, and it provided the answer in the printed catalog for the archives or for the annual report. The Thomas uh, Daring was listed by Blackburn. So they made the mistakes themselves. And soon thereafter, even before Bailey had entered this picture, another American art historian, Theodore Bolton, wrote that Blackburn, quote, made a few pastel portraits on canvas which may have influenced Copley. So you see, the myth was already published and was well underway. And this publication itself may have set in notion the idea to Bailey to attribute a few more pastels to Blackburn. The idea that Blackburn might be credited with doing pastels also may have come because he knew of two other paintings by Blackburn of the Otises that actually are more soft. Blackburn was called a hard-edge painter, but there were two that were quite soft, the technique that's used in pastels. Okay, there are the three heroes that aren't who they are. So at some point, Bailey decided to create his own Blackburns. A clue as to how he may have done this, could be, which would prove useful in the false identities, was a note he received from a C.K. Johnson, a dealer, who wrote to Bailey on August 5th, unfortunately the year is not given in the letter, would you be interested in this portrait? It was purchased in Connecticut. The sitter is unknown. On the reverse were the measurements of the verse of the letter, 22 by 14. Now the medium wasn't given, but 22 by 14 was the standard size for pastels. Now to any source he might use for his made up pastels, more than 2,000 colonial era portraits passed through his gallery. And many of all which were photographed by a man named Bradford Baldwin Coolidge. Bailey conducted other photographs from illustrations cut out of magazines and journals, so he had a large collection of photo archives to use. Likenesses could be copied from them if he wanted to do so. So, obviously, the subjects that he chose were important civic, uh, very civic people who would be important to major institutions like this one and the Museum of Fine Arts. Now, for biographies of these colorful civic worthies, along with others, were generated for Bailey by a man named Robert M. DeForest, a New York art dealer who simply rewrote, hyped them up a bit, and typed them for potential clients. Although he had the same first and last name as Robert W. DeForest, president of the board of the Metropolitan Museum, no association has yet been found. He seems to have adopted the name for convenience. And of course, it was a very important name to have. David Deeringer found out that over the next several years, and probably well into the 1920s, DeForest would feed Bailey dozens of paintings, sometimes directly and other times through other galleries, including the Vos Gallery of Boston. 
the biographies of the art were peppered with exploits and human interest tidbits, such as this one. The Olivers were very fond of Mrs. Vassell. And many of them contained the phrase that the sitter was, quote, an intimate friend of another important worthy. Whoever worked on the pastels indubitably used the photographs that Bailey had collected when available and made changes primarily to the face. But Bailey himself was probably not the artist. Before he went into the gallery work, he was a bookkeeper. The specialty of Bailey was definitely colonial portraiture with exhibitions in his gallery. But the full page promotion he included at the end of each of his pamphlets of little known uh, American portraits, which are upstairs, said that he also offered restoration work done, quote, under my personal supervision. Bailey's firm offered these services regularly enough. He had a label printed up in red that could be pasted to the back of paintings that went through his shop. This picture was restored at the Copley Gallery, 103 Newbury Street, Boston. And below that, there was space for the date to be written in. Nothing like good, precise, accurate documentation. <laughs> During the examination of the draftsmanship around the eyes of Lieutenant Governor Oliver, the technique seemed familiar to me, and indeed, it closely resembles the work that you see in Hannah Payne. Now, this has, the strokes were puzzling to me because Blythe did not, they were atypical of Blythe. And also some of the dark brown strokes, maybe the lines for the lashes under the eyes and the strokes at the end of her eyebrows seem fresher than those on the rest of the pastel. The same is true of the marks around her mouth with a very deft flesh-colored stroke at the lower end. Now here's Oliver, look at the eyes. Similarly, the outside corner of Oliver's lip line had been darkened and these restorations look to be by the same hand. The portrait said to be of Jonathan Belcher, by the way, which the Mass Commission bought, it's his, which is in Belcher, was also touched up the same way. Remember the Beatties that we saw when I showed you the very beginning? There's Beatty. And on the right, you can see the addition of the marks. And you know, these iPhones are fabulous things because they really pick up details. Can you see the three-dimensionality and see that the, the added black lines that look, that look stronger? Right above the ear and the eyelash. So, Bailey's restoration services extended to redrawing works such as the alleged Blackburn pastels, and they were done by an artist quite competent with a crayon. One name surfaced after I discovered an inscription on the back of a photograph of the portrait of Hannah Payne, the photograph in the Bailey Collection at Historic New England, the former Society for Preservation of New England Antiquities. On the back it said, the photograph was made by Baldwin Coolidge, 
Boston, January 24, 1906. Hannah's portrait would seem to have been worked on when it was in the family because it did not enter the Worcester Museum until 1952. And the inscription raised the possibility that Coolidge might have worked on it as well as photographed it. Significantly, Coolidge had considered himself an artist. According to his former secretary, it was the second of his successful careers before taking up photography. He abandoned his career as an engineer and advertised himself as a painter from 1879 to 1883. By 1886, he was listing himself as a photographer. So he was an ideal person to fit both bills. In addition to working for Bailey, Coolidge was official photographer for the Museum of Fine Arts for close to 30 years, for which he received a substantial income from selling images of his photographs. And moreover, the relationship between Bailey and Coolidge were quite extensive. Coolidge moved his shop in 1899 from downtown Boston to 410 Boylston Street in Back Bay, only two blocks from Bailey. And after the death of his wife, he moved by 1907 to his building on Boylston Street. And there were social connections as well. Coolidge's wife came from Newburyport, where Bailey was born and where he maintained a summer home on Plum Island. And keep this fact in mind too. Coolidge moved to California in 1917, a move said to have been because of mounting expenses and his declining health. But one does wonder if there was another reason. He kept on sketching while he was in California. And further adding to the mystery, when William Sumner Appleton, head of the SPNEA, wrote to Coolidge's former secretary for her help with a memorial tribute to Coolidge, she penned this cryptic sentence. I am not the person to write such an article, even if you wished so full a story. So Coolidge had, penned an oil, had painted an oil portrait of Charles Francis Adams II, which is now in the collections of the Massachusetts Historical Society. A particular note of the eyes, lined with the same prominent lower lash strokes found on the pastels of Hannah Payne, Governor, Belcher, and others. As for the signatures on the three spurious Blackburns, Bailey had a good photograph of a Blackburn signature which he has reproduced in one of his books. There it is. Blackburn pinks it. The bottom one is the legit one. The top one is the copy. Like other alterations, the signatures on the pastel seemed fresher than the other pastel strokes. And for an even more convincing argument, it was pointed out that although it's in brown, that particular hue of brown was used nowhere else on these very colorful pastels. So that somewhat of a giveaway. Pastel is a free, uh, very, very fragile medium, and it falls off, of course. However, new strokes show up all the more. So the first 
occasion in which the story of the alleged Blackburns might have been broadcast was when John Hill Morgan contacted the MFA shortly after it had purchased, quote, Lieutenant Oliver, Lieutenant General Oliver. Remember, Morgan had turned down buying them from Bailey. Morgan expressed to the MFA his reservations, a, gentleman way, a gentlemanly way of saying incredulity, and spelling out his reasons. It was not publicly announced, but undoubtedly Bailey must have heard or become aware of it, as subsequent events will prove. By 1934, the, Met was work, the Met MFA was working on a proposed catalog of its portrait collection. The estimable scholar Barbara Neville Parker, curatorial assistant in the department working on the catalog, sent a memo on December 5th to Mr. Edgell for advice on how to handle the potentially embarrassing situation. He replied, and I quote, I doubt if it is worthwhile to remove the attribution entirely, since they are traditional, but rather that it is better to run a little warning flag preserving the traditional names. For the same reason, I should think you might include it with the other Blackburns in writing up the catalog, putting it at the end and inserting question marks and explaining your reasons. Okay, I have three observations about this note. From the first, the word traditional from Mr. Edgell is a bit hyperbolic because the pastel had only been in the collection for four years. One has the suspicion that he was a party to its purchase and was trying to sweep the whole disposition under the rug. Second, may I suggest to the feminists here today that yet another example of how the judgment of scholars who happened to be women were given less credence or uh, weight or even coveted titles into the late 20th century. Barbara Parker herself had the title curatorial assistant. That's not assistant curator. Two years later, she and her, her cohort, Ann Wheeler, wrote a very good book on John Singleton Copley. Again, the euphemism attributed was used for their dubious attributions, probably because they didn't want to alienate the many members of the MFA patrons who happened to own dubious copies. <laughs> then the third uh, comment about this vote is that to art historians and collectors, question marks that Edgell suggested mean possible but not necessarily secure attribution. They generally do not indicate fraud. Therefore, this myth pers persisted, and for many years the pastel was noted as among those of one of four by Blackburn. And even the Smithsonian's very well-known inventory of research information system listed them as Blackburns into the 1980s. Bailey died in 1932, and two years later, Morgan and Henry Wilder Foote came out with the first published account denying the attributions and hinting at the fraud in an article for the American Antiquarian Society Journal. They noted that the information Bailey provided about the portrait of Hutchinson asserted it was painted for his intimate friend and associate governor, uh, Thomas Oliver, and it was a pendant to that of Mrs. Oliver, inherited in the family of Miss Penelope Vassal. Morgan and Foote then deconstructed the genealogical claims and they proved them faulty. Morgan and Foote then said that from the above facts, Mr. Morgan and Mr. Foote do not believe that Blackburn worked in pastel 
and they withhold agreement with the attribution of the portrait to Blackburn. As for the portrait of Oliver, the gentleman scholars wrote, they concur in the opinion that this portrait is not by Blackburn, but they leave open the question as to whether or not it was Governor Oliver, which is to be determined by later research. So under their discussion of the portrait of Elizabeth Vassal Oliver, they noted that Bailey had written in his statement to the Museum of Fine Arts that it was purchased from a descendant, Elizabeth Dagan of Brooklyn, New York. A person, the man claimed, who cannot be found to have existed. <laughs> Again, Morgan and Foote concurred it was not by Blackburn. Morgan then bought the Mrs. Oliver for $20 from an auction of the estate of Bailey after he died, and they took it to the Boston Museum for comparison with the portrait of her husband. And they determined without a doubt that the signature was a later addition. So the visit finally confirmed to the MFA that it had been duped. Did Coolidge, if indeed he were the restoration artist, himself sign the suspicious portraits? Blackburn paints it 1760? I don't think so. I think, in fact, he probably did not inscribe the name. Bailey began peddling them the year following Coolidge's death in 1928. The Museum of Fine Arts subsequently demoted both the artist and the portrait to unknown man by unknown artist. Governor Hutchinson actually has never been found. It was reported to have been bought by the MFA, but it was so similar to the Oliver, I think somebody made a mistake somewhere along the way, and I've never found it, and I've been looking for two years for it. As for Mrs. Oliver, Yale has downgraded her to unknown woman by unknown artist, possibly British. <laughs> the Thomas Daring is, in fact, Thomas Daring. A few years ago, the Metropolitan recatalogued it as a possible Blythe. It was badly damaged at some point, and there have been touching up of previously damaged parts quite a bit, so it's really hard to tell. But the attribution does seem logical. So, was attribution of the Daring to Blackburn an accidental mistake by the Metropolitan, or did the dealer DeForest have a hand in making that suggestion? Could it be that Coolidge worked on the other pastels, but wanted no part in the deception and where it might be leading? If the other three Blackburn portraits were executed at that time, does that explain why Bailey might have refrained from selling them until after Coolidge's death? In the end, Coolidge is the most likely artist to have worked on these pastels, although it is doubtful that he was a party to the fraud, and Bailey had a good hand which he could use to do the script. The Copley Gallery's redrawing and repainting has altered works, however, that might have been credited to Benjamin Blythe. In fine, what a tragedy. It is unfortunate for the loss of such an attractive thesis that Blackburn might have influenced Bastel with his pastel works. It is abundantly clear, however, that Blythe did pick up technical expertise from Blackburn's oil portraits. But equally, if even more important fallout from this fraud is that the identities of at least two of the original sitters are irretrievably lost. It has robbed us of the opportunity to learn their rightful identity. And the last consequence, 
Frank W. Bailey was a man highly considered and who was a fine scholar of colonial portraiture. He enjoyed a collegial relationship and traveled around the country with other estimable scholars. However, his reputation was ruined when the story of the false Blackburns came out. And he died in 1932, allegedly a suicide, at the beach of his vacation home in Newburyport. In closing, it has to be acknowledged that there do exist many portraits and collections that are of unknown sitters, like this haunting image, which I love, in the Peabody Essex Museum. It's an obvious blight. At some time in the past, it was regrettably damaged by water. You can see three different lines there, so it was probably three different times. I mean, water is level, right? So if you have it three different ways, it was lying three different ways. Four other damaged pastels in the former Essex Institute were conserved in 1962, but this one, presumably damaged at the same time, did not make it to the conservation lab. Perhaps precisely because the sitter was unknown and still is, even though it is a compelling portrait. The significant legacy of Blythe, in conclusion, is the impressive collection of people whom he mortalized. His insightful portraits, primarily pastels, but also including oils and, and uh, miniatures, bring to life the people who lived through the social and political turmoil of the American Revolution. Blythe was there, recording ship captains, merchants, political leaders, members of the clergy, soldiers, and privateers during the war, and their wives and children. There's Samuel Kerwin, curmudgeonly Samuel Kerwin, and the beneficent Dr. Edward Holyoke, and then Lydia Fippen Fisk, and a very diffident Elizabeth Crown and Shield Derby. And a very determined William Goddard, and a placid Joseph Lemon. Now, Lemon, which is our last image, is particularly interesting because when the family owners were trying to determine if indeed it was a John Singleton Copley, as they had thought for generations, or Benjamin Blythe, as had been suggested, they sought the opinions on numerous institutions throughout the whole country. Our own director here at the Boston Athenaeum wrote to the owners that he thought it probably was a Copley. It was too good to be by Blythe. <laughs> well, he was wrong. It is a Blythe. And overwhelmingly, the portraits are the only known images of some of these people. A number of them are treasures, compelling for their visual appeal and for their study of personality. Portraits, after all, were of living people. Too bad we don't know the identities of those who were used in the fraud. So that's it.